Hello, and welcome to the 34th edition of the Traveling 2 Bike Touring Show. I'm your host, Friedel. This show is a bit of a special edition because we're talking to Heinz Stucke. With nearly 50 years on the road and over 600,000 kilometers under his wheels, he's got more than a few stories to tell. bike tourists go, you won't find anyone with more experience than Heinz Stucke. He left his home in Germany in 1962 and hasn't looked back since. Heinz has been on the road for nearly 50 years now. His bike has been stolen six times, and every time he got it back. He's visited nearly every country in the world, and at 70 years old, he's still going strong. Perhaps most amazing is how Heinz has managed to travel so much by bicycle without ever having a big stockpile of cash or taking up a normal working life. His story is a fascinating one, and I'd always hoped to run into Heinz one day, but I didn't really think my chances were that high. After all, Heinz isn't someone you can track easily. He doesn't have a website with regular updates, and news of his location only really comes from other bike tourists. So when a series of coincidences led me to the phone number of a Paris apartment that Heinz uses between journeys, it's safe to say I was shocked. I was shocked, and then I picked up the phone, not really knowing what his reaction would be to a request for an interview. I was nervous, but within 30 seconds, I knew that I didn't have any reason to worry. Heinz was only too happy to talk about his travels, and soon he was launching headfirst into all kinds of stories. It was two hours later before we hung up the phone. Now, here's your chance to listen in on the best of the conversation. Heinz starts by talking about how bike touring has changed for him over the years. More and more, I like uh, kind of the bicycle and long traveling, long on long, uh, on long stretches. Sort of, I get into the rhythm of things and... Because I camp uh, 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 salvage, as they call it, camping salvage, you know, I go out at the end of the day and then I, I look for, I look out for a nice, nice spot and and I set, I set up my camp, I do my cooking, I do my reading, I listen to the radio, and it's all sort of a, a rhythm now of, uh, of which I, what, what I like much better when, when I'm getting older. But in the earlier days, I I wanted to reach cities and I, I wanted to go out in the evening and you know the way <laughs> drinking and bars and girls and things like that you know so uh, it's a, a bit different my my lifestyle has become a priority is more like uh, slow uh, on the bike i don't i don't rush you know i don't you know i stop all the time on on, on and, and take photographs but sort of i i don't know I'm, I'm looking for some kind of treasures while i'm while i'm going on a route that i have never done and uh, it's just sort of subconscious that i I look out for something. You don't go like in in a daily life. You work in the factory and you get up at eight o'clock in the morning, you know, eight to five job type of thing. 
uh, which, uh, which, uh, which is uh, uh, rather depressing, I think. And how have the routes changed since you started traveling all those years ago? Now it's very common for people to go from Europe, for example, across Central Asia and then down to India or China. Was it the same when you started traveling? Well, uh, that, that's not, that wasn't really a sort of standard route in the days when the Soviet Union was there, of course, because that was very difficult to go through the Soviet Union. But more and more people go through Central Asia now. And sort of the standard route in those days was like, well, they call it the hippie route as well, uh, was right through Turkey and into Iran and through uh, Pakistan and into India. You know, that was the standard route. India was usually sort of the end because you couldn't get into Burma. I mean, overland you can't. I'm quite sure that still today is the same, isn't it? Yeah, you have to fly like in. Yeah, yeah, in those days there was, uh, was even a limitation. You only, you know, then you really had to run when you wanted to see something. And Burma is a great country. I really, I really liked it there. I was the second time around there, so now it's much easier to go in. Although I tried to go in through the Five Pagoda Pass from Thailand, and uh, and I couldn't. You know, I had to go back and get and then, then fly. Uh, I couldn't even bribe these people. You know? <laughs> you know, you can go in into the into the border town. Then I I decided to go on, and but you were blocked with uh, with military military blockage on the way and then on the road. And of course, they wouldn't. I, even I offered them a hundred dollars. That's a lot of money for those people, you know. And they wouldn't let me go. So I had to go back out again, and then back to Bangkok, and then had to fly there, fly to Rangoon. But otherwise, uh, you could go in many places, not not very, very in the tribal area, because there's always some trouble there. But uh, otherwise, you can go to many places, there are Mandalay and the Indian Lake. And, and uh, well, you usually get a month's visa now, so it, in a month you can't really stay. Heinz, I'm curious about how you communicate when you're in countries like these. Obviously, you've mastered the English language very, very well. But when you're in a country like Burma or maybe China, how do you actually communicate with the local people for asking directions and all the other things you need when you're on the road. Well, you have a system, you know. You, you, everything you do, you sort of have to pray, think about it, you know. And if it's difficult, for example, in China, you find a way of how. How do you find your way in China, you know? Because the people don't. You can't ask the people, you know. Most hardly anybody speaks English, and my my Chinese is. I mean, I tried very hard in the beginning, and I thought I, you know, I memorized something like 500 words. But it was completely useless because when they see my face, you know, they have this, uh, you know, mayo expression on their face. And they, it's no, they don't listen. They say, oh, you have a, an English, uh, you have a Chinese, a very good map. Uh, there's some truck, truck driver's maps and, and you can compare signs. Uh, and of course, you have a, a guidebook, for example, Lonely Planet has, for example, in big cities, places where one could sleep for cheap and he, they gave directions and things. So I spent like two years in China and cycled 35,000 kilometers there and uh, found my way, you know, but not with the help of the people because hardly ever, I, I didn't, you know, after, after repeated failures, I just gave up. Was that your most difficult country for communication, do you think? Well, for communication, definitely, and for some other things as well, because as I, as I have Camping Salvage, you know, imagine a country where 1.3 billion people live. You know, that's not very easy. And when you're a stranger in, 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 in there, you know, they, 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 uh, they uh, stumble upon you in the night. You know, of course, they sort of call it whatever they, the, the PSB, you know, the, the, the tourist police sort of. And then they come and then they say, oh, you can't sleep that way. 
you must come with us. And then they find out that actually you're cycling in a closed area there. And so then it is, you know, you, you are stuck. And then, you know, then they discuss and then they give you a fine and, and then they force you to leave their areas or sort of they give you a guide. And what's the funny thing in China is they just, they just are interested that you get out of their jurisdiction. And uh, once, you're, once you're out of their jurisdiction, you get back on your bike and you cycle again, you know. And you try not to be caught, you know, and you try not to, you know, it's kind of uh, hiding all the time when, when, I, when I set up camp. And, you know, there are innumerable little stories what... You know, I was in a one once uh, at a, 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 a you know agricultural field, and we, uh, they steal each other's uh, harvest a bit there. You know, so they have to kind of guard their fields, and there are sort of little little makeshift uh, little little shelters where where when the when the harvest is is ready and ripe, where somebody watches. You know, and somebody had seen me somewhere up on the hillside from the distance. And it just was was becoming dark, and then I suddenly realized down there they were looking for me, you know, with with flashlights and and with uh, with sticks in their hands, and they walked all around their field, and I was kept I kept very quiet for a while, and fortunately they didn't even encounter me. But usually nothing much happened, then except that the authorities are informed, and then I know when that happens, then you are you are in in a in a, in a very unpleasant uh, night, you know, in for a very unpleasant night. But you know, it's a, I, you know, you learn if you are willing to learn. So it's amazing what you can do. What often is very much against the law. You know, bike riding and things. You know, on the wrong side of the road. I never wear a helmet. You know, because I get headache when I wear a helmet. You know, and I'm entitled to it. Or not wear a helmet because I have six hundred thousand kilometers on my back. And but the police or something, they don't understand that. In Australia, it was so funny because in the middle of nowhere, in a place called Cloncurry, hottest place in Australia. At two o'clock in the afternoon, nobody, no, no soul to be seen, you know. And uh, and there I was in Cloncourt, sitting in a, in the in the front room of a supermarket where it was nice and cool. And you can't sit there forever, so I decided to have my Guinness in one of the bars, and I walked across, I, I rode across the street, sort of 300 yards to the to the uh, to the pub. And you know what? There was a police car coming by, and the guy shouted, "Put!" Yeah, helmet on. And I looked at him and I said, you must be joking, you know. And they gave me a fine of 30 Australian dollars. And did you pay it? <laughs> no, because you can't pay there even, you know. It's sort of a, you have to pay it to the treasury, you know, on your own. You could run away, but you never know these days. You know, the computer is a big dictator and you they put you on the black list. And the next time you come into the country, they will say, uh, and listen, you didn't pay your fine, you know. <laughs> you won't come into the country. I don't know, you go to Australia, did you? Yes, we did, yeah. We actually did make it to Australia, but we wore our helmets, so we didn't have any trouble with the police. Yeah, but then helmet or other things, because they are a pain in the neck, the authorities there, you know. The airport, you know, had bungee corded up my bicycle, you know, because they wanted to be covered. And then the bungee cords were not allowed. And the guy, he wouldn't do, he wouldn't let me put the bike on the, on the plane because it wasn't, uh, the bungee cord could be, could come off and could hurt somebody who is handling the bicycle, you know. You must have had quite a few run-ins with bureaucracy. Well, you know, you know, there, there is, uh, there, there is uh, almost 18,000 days on the road now, which means that, uh, of course, a, guy, a person who is a year or two on the road, you know, you may have some encounters, but sooner or later, 
if you're such a long way, such a long time, some other things will happen, you know, and everything will happen, actually, you know, except that I'm still alive anyway, because, you know, trucks and I, I am for this. Uh, you don't need to wear a helmet, but it must be a law to have a rear view mirror because nobody has that. And I think without that, I would be dead by now. You must see what is coming, you know, from behind. And if there are, there's a truck from the front and a truck from behind and there's no shoulder. And so you have to, you have to know that, you know, and then you can, you know, exactly where they will come together when you look at the mirror and it must not be a wide angle rear view mirror it must be must be one uh, one that is one to one so you can you can judge exactly you know very few people actually have how do you have yes yeah i wouldn't ride without it yeah. i agree with you i think it's the most important thing i have on my bicycle that and i have a bright yellow uh, reflective vest yeah bright vest is uh, you know you sometimes look a bit funny that way but i also agree with that because i often wear one of these yellow over jacket especially in heavy traffic you know you know, people want to get away from cities and they, they, they go with bicycle on, on, on cycle routes, which I never do. I grew up with the cars and I kind of like it because I, I'm not, uh, I, I, want to, I don't want to get away from, from something uh, to get into nature, what, what I may call. But if I enter a country, I want to have all. That, that means I have to move in established sort of lanes and, and that's the main roads. And, and I, you know, I stop so often. I, you know, every, every, you know, shops on the side, you know, on cycle paths in the nature, you don't have those things. <laughs> so I'm not so fond about cycle passes. And besides the cycle passes they make now in in some countries, I hate them. You know, because they force you off the road, and then they the cycle passes are not well done. You know, you come to crossings, the signs are tiny. I have to get up and put on my my glasses to to read the signs. You know. <laughs> Yeah, because I'm getting older. Listen, I'm getting older. I can't see everything so much anymore. And in Germany, it's awful. It's dangerous. They are traps because they are on sidewalks. And if you have a cycle path only on one side of the road, you know, the cycle path, and if you're on the wrong side of the road and cycle on the cycle path, which you're supposed to do, it's absolutely dangerous. Because the people, they come in from side roads and they ever, I mean, I, I, I fight in traffic all through my life in, in 600,000 kilometers in 48 years. And I've never had been, I never really was, have any real trouble with, with, with other, you know, with, with drivers on the road. But uh, here in Germany, you know, <laughs> I was, and I come riding down the cycle paths on the, on the wrong side of the road, of course, uh, uh, and uh, come to a crossing and a car come in from the side. And I, I have the right of way, so I pass in front of him. Drive when I was in front of him, he started driving and drove me over. He just ran me down, and he says, "Oh, ich habe sie gar nicht gesehen." I did. I just, I, I didn't see you, you know. Uh, well, I know that, you know. And my, and it was on a Saturday, and when bike shops were not open, uh, so I agreed that I accepted thirty thirty euro from him, and uh, and he went off, you know. But I, I realized that my whole my whole bike frame was bent. You know, I wasn't damaged because it, he didn't have a high speed. He just restarted, but he didn't see me. And then two days later, I was on the right side of the road on a, on a cycle pass on the sidewalk, of course, which is awful, it's bumpy and shitty. And there was a woman coming from the front. She was on the on the on uh, well, you know, she was on the cycle pass, but she she came on the wrong side of the road on the cycle pass, and she was driven over exactly like I was two days earlier. It's deadly. It's deadly. They're traps, you know. I, I say, you know, the simplest thing is let cyclists uh, travel with the traffic. All you need to do is 
buy some paint. They spent millions of, 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 of dollars and, and euro on cycle passes. Instead, they could spend just a few thousands on paint and paint a white line about 80 centimeters from the edge of the road. The car driver knows the white line is his limit, and this 80 centimeters is enough for a cyclist, you know. The roundabouts are deadly, you know. They, they wear you off, and then you have to cross the road. And if you want to go left on a roundabout, you know how long it takes to get... To get the idea is, by bicycle, get off the car and get on a bicycle. But the idea is you are also... You want to get to your destination uh, quickly. And now they, they slow you down even, you know, with, with, uh, with cycle passes on the sidewalk and, 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 and really blocking you, your way to get on a, on a roundabout if you turn left. It takes you five minutes to, to get to the left turn, you know, while you are with the traffic in the roundabout. It's the easiest thing in the world. The driver sees you, you know, even on the, uh, the Arc de Triomphe around it, uh, uh, you know, without any problem, you know, in the in the traffic. And I mean, like it's all the people that ride bicycles, for example, that that have to go fast on bicycles. They hate the cycle passes as well. They never go on them. Obviously, cycle paths are something that you feel very, very passionate about. I'd like to go back to countries, though. You've traveled so many places, almost all the countries in the world. And when you look back on it all, is it possible to pick out a few places that really stand out for you as being very enjoyable places to travel on a bicycle? Well, every country has one thing that is for you, for you, you know, like food is India, for example, you know, but what countries are, are cheap because you have only little money in your pocket. So you have countries where, 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 where everything is cheap, you know, and you like that because of that, you know, and you like countries when, uh, when things work better, you know, where you, where you, where you, uh, where you can rely on timetables and things like that. And of course, when I started out in the beginning, it was I was only exotic countries that counted. And when it was a, a Western-style country, it at least had to be on the other side of the world, you know. So like New Zealand, I would accept, you know. <laughs> but my neighboring countries, France and Italy and all of these places, wouldn't wouldn't really uh, matter in my early days, you know. And then in, when I was set 20 years on the road. Then I decided that no, well, you have to have, always have to have a goal to make it whatever your movement is. That if you have a goal, it makes it much more worthwhile. You can't just bum around, you know. Although basically I do that, but uh, but you have, in the back of my head, I have always a goal. And so in the 80s, sort of, I decided to go to all the countries in the world, and then it really didn't matter so much what uh, what the 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 uh, the, the culture. Uh, in a country was it was was it close to my own uh, you know sure you feel more comfortable when you are in a, in a in a society that is is a little bit closer to yours but but i never want to be a, a specialist in another country so when i'm 3 or 4 or 5 months in a country depending on size i usually had sort of the feeling that i knew a bit about the country i'd been invited i tasted the foods i'd seen the sights and then it was time to move on to another country. And you've been on the road for so long. Have you ever felt during that time that maybe you were getting a little bit tired on the road, that it was just time to go home now? No, because I, I'm very ambitious in the sense, you know, this is my life. Uh, this is also this lifestyle feeds me. You see, I'm not somebody who has to go back or, or to make money again or work in the factory or even somebody who has saved enough money for any period of time. And of course it is your shoestring travel in the first 20 years you know you don't spend money you just wait until somebody invites you and then you eat like a camel 
you know, you eat four, you eat three kilograms of meat. So for the next three days, you don't need to eat. You know, it was always like that. And it was all just no transport was ever paid for sort of, you know, I was years and years and years of traveling, seven years in the two Americas without ever taking, or, you know, just in the little bit in the, in the, in the center, in the, in the, in the diary and never ever taken uh, public transport. And because I met so many people and I got into the families and things, and they often would say, okay, let me show you this place. And wow, have you seen this? And then they would, we would drive uh, with the family to certain places, you know? So I, I mean, I did that, but otherwise it was just everything on the bicycle. And my, the money was usually, you know, like I said, I didn't need much, although today is completely different because uh, cyclists do need money. There are some facilities for them. There are small little hostels everywhere. And, uh, you, uh, and you, yeah, you take public transport. Of course, you fly. Uh, you have to fly sometimes. So you will have to pound like, you know, one day cost you about, uh, what, say, 20 euro or something like that, you know. But it, it, it was never like that for me for, for many, many, many years. And so uh, after 10 years on the road, you know, I was not ever thinking about going back to the factory and, and trying to make a living uh, that way and maybe have a chance because that's what often is the case when you, when you stop and you get back into the society and, you know, you are maybe in your mid-30s and you think about, yeah, it's about time to make a family or the parents pressure you into it, you know, so then it's very difficult to, to, uh, to then start again. So I just stuck to it. I found my Shangri-La, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm all, because I have always new plans and new books, no, there is no, and I'm, you know, I resolutely keep going on. There's no time for, for, for depression or to, uh, to, to think about, well, you know, what, what would have been if you would have had a different, different life. And I'm 70 years now, so it's, uh, it's, it's a bit, because I have no insurance, I have no, no real future, but I'm, I'm, as I am on the road, uh, it, it, it is not prob- it's no problem because I always find my way. And now I have a bit of a name and money suddenly comes from all kinds of uh, uh, sources. And, uh, and I can even play a bit of a rich guy, you know, because, you know I even sponsor <laughs> other cyclists a little bit, you know, because I feel like, you know, I had such a hard time in the beginning and people gave me so much all the time that it's about time to give something back, you know. You must have days, though. I mean, that are a bit challenging, or or where you sort of question why why you're doing it. Everybody has, you know. But once you have decided that that is what you would would want to do in your life, you know, you, you know, unfortunately, uh, most lives in this automated society is very degrading. You know, you have a job that you repeat, and just to get the money and and to pay for your life. And then depression is a big thing in society nowadays because making a living is uh, is often degrading. But then there is a few percentage that have found what they wanted to do. You know, you look at a musician, all he wants to do is play music all his life, you know, or well, painters, or you name them. You, people are, when they can make a living with, with a, a more creative, even in the olden days, you were a carpenter. It was very rewarding, but now it is not, you know, because you only take a small uh, step, uh, and many people have just that one little small step in the in the in a manufacturing process and and that is not very satisfying uh, if you're in the service industry it's a little bit better but uh yeah you know, I, I know you look around and most people do a job that they don't really like but they have to do because they have to make money but you like your job and i like my job <laughs> and i'm surrounded now here by all the paraphernalia of my journey but i want a place where i can uh, sort out 
uh, the, the, the tons and tons and tons of of souvenirs and uh, and mainly pictures, of course, because I like when I when I travel, whenever I'm, I'm, my eyes are open all the time for images, you know, that I can uh, that I can capture, and that's sort of my treasure, you know. And although I haven't hardly used my pictures, but I sort of feel like, well, yeah, that's what is my work, and more and more it's like that, you know, where I, I I'm very proud of of good good uh, photographic results of my journey, you know. But then now they're stuck to, or as I sit here and talk to you, I'm looking at boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes. So I really like a place where I can uh, get organized to make a uh, sort of an archive where I can get at things. And do you have any plans to publish a book at all? or? Well, there's always... I, I, <laughs> I said that 30 years ago, you know, while my legs uh, hold out and, uh, and while there are new places and there seems to be always new places. It doesn't matter how old and how long I travel. There seems to be over there. I just come back from Chichijima and Hajima. This is a group of islands called the Ogasawaras, about a thousand kilometers south of Tokyo. Of course, these are some of the remote areas that if I had to get there, I could have never thought about it in the, in the past because it would have been just too expensive. But I seem to get the money now that I can simply fly there. You know, the guy from Hong Kong, a friend of mine, I used to sleep in his storeroom all the time on top of my booklets in the bike shop that he had. He sent me a letter recently, and uh, I just picked it up when I came back from South America because I've been in the Amazon there, in the Transamazonica. And, uh, and I read and he said, uh, hey, well, hey, man, it's about 11 years we saw last time, and it's about time uh, you come for a visit before your old bones fall to pieces, as he said, you know. And so, and so, and then he said, look, I, I don't expect you, maybe you don't have the money, but I will send you 2,000 euro so you can pay for the journey. Wow. Hey, man. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to do a, a quick, because my Christmas is always important. I had like 48 Christmases now in different parts of the world, and I don't want to be Christmas, Christmas sort of in the same place. And I looked at the map, and I looked at the map, and I said, Christmas is coming up. And I said, yeah, you know, because there are some lists of places that, uh, that people have to, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they make lists that, sort of the Guinness Book, for example. You want to be the most troubled person, you have to go to such and such a place. And I have the list. And the list said that the United Arab Emirates are seven emirates, and you have to be in all of them because they are sort of independent and I had been there years ago, but at that time, those things were not so important, you know, and now I'm, I'm guided by these sort of lists. And then I said, well, I hadn't been in Fujera, for example. And so I thought, well, that seems to be a good place to go for Christmas. <laughs> and, I will do, and then the letter from Hong Kong came, and I said, oh, well, Emirates flies to Dubai, but they also fly to Hong Kong, and they fly to Japan. And so I said, oh, man, I can combine it. And then there was this, the only area around Japan, because I've been traveling for about two years around Japan, and I've been just about everywhere, except that in this list, they mentioned the Ogasawara Island. I didn't know where they were, you know. <laughs> They're sort of south, thousand kilometers south of Tokyo. And I found out when ferries were going there, because they, these areas don't have airports. And so I, I combined all of this, you know. I went to the United Arab Emirates. I went to Hong Kong to see my friend. Had a very fat time there because in China and Hong Kong, they eat like crazy. Huh? And then it was to Tokyo, and I got my ferry. The islands were wonderful. They were so far south that you could swim. 
And then I visited my friends in Osaka, including the guy that you probably have the news from. Daisuke, yes, you know? exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And he instantly, of course, nowadays, I don't use the Internet. I'm Internet. I'm uh, computer illiterate, you know. And uh, and I let other people do it, but they, uh, you know, the chatting goes around to feel where is this guy? What is he doing now? And so everybody seems to know when I was at the festival here, they already knew that I had been coming back from Japan and had been in the Ogasawaras, you know. You know, you can't keep any secrets anymore, <laughs> Friedel. <laughs> <laughs> so, and there, there were lots of incidents. I also in the past, you know, my bicycle was stolen when I was on my way to Greenland. And it happened in Portsmouth just after I left the ferry. And so they, then the local news and the police, and as we asked the local news, they made a story and they had the Associated Press coming. Uh, everybody was on the story suddenly. It went all over England was in the national papers, the Sun, the, the Daily Mirror, everybody, a you know, big, big story. So from then on, when I finally, and of course, because of it, the bicycle was found quite quickly. And when I was cycling there, everybody knew it. I got honked from cars and they shouted at me and and somebody, somebody, some people stopped and put 20 pounds in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have to ask you, because I remember reading that story. Was your bike locked? Uh, it was locked my way, you know. It was bungee corded, and, and it, it's never really a problem. But, you know, because my bicycle is an old clonker, nobody, there's, there's, no, there's no reason to take that bicycle. But these people, in the middle of the night, they saw my tent, which was a nice tent, you know, it's a, it's a North Face. And, and they know these days travelers have expensive equipment. And so they just took the bike without ever, ever even, uh, even uh, considering what kind of bike it was, you know. And when it made the news, of course, the guy saw what shit he had in his hand, and he must have dumped it as quick as, as possible in the next park. And it was like four kilometers away where it was found. And the guy who saw it, he knew the story, and called the police, and it was just barely uh, 35 hours into the theft that the, the call came from the police, and they said, well, we think we got your bicycle. You know? <laughs> and is that still the same bike that you started on? And yeah, it is. it's an old, heavy, 25-kilogram, uh, solid, normal frame, you know, and you can weld it all the time. The frame has been welded so, has been welded so many times, broken so many times, like the time when I was run down by the car, of course. You know, I had to do some... Some straightening. One time in a British Airway flight from Antigua back to, to London and Paris, uh, I discovered that the frame had been broken in three places, you know. But I was, I was, I was about, that was about the time I needed a complete overhaul of the bicycle anyway. And that was a good reason, you know. I went to the bike shop. I, I got a bike shop here. They had a frame builder. And I was known there. I didn't have to pay a lot of money there. In fact, I didn't have to pay anything. And we stripped it down to nothing, sunblasted the whole thing. And then the, the welder went at it, and they made, it was reinforced just about everywhere. The bicycle became at least a kilogram heavier with all the reinforcements. And then it was beautifully painted. It's in beautiful shape now. I ride it, but I, I'm a bit afraid now to, to lose it again because it's been stolen six times altogether. And I, every time I got it back. There's a lot of uh, memories in that bicycle, I think. Yeah, it's a nice piece. I mean, I got my world map on it, and there's a lot of work in that, in the painting, the names, the things that are painted all over the over the bike, and uh, and it's a good conversation starter. Which are, you know, you I always let people come to you and 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 ask something. Uh, it's a different story altogether. Uh, you know, you know, when people from their side want to help you, you you ask for help then they will uh, uh, recline because uh, 
what, what this kind of guy wants, you know, they, they, they're shying, they're shying back. But if they come forward and they ask, you know, it was always like this. And I said, oh, that's a beautiful bike. You're traveling around the world. Hey, man, uh, how, what, 20 years? Uh, where do you get the money from? You know, among other things, you know, you're welcome to buy, <laughs> buy the booklet. And, and well, how much is it? Uh, it doesn't matter. You know, you give what you want. And if you don't have money, I give it to you. And so they, they whip out $10, $20, and they give you that money for the, for the little booklet that I have, uh, usually I have it with me. You know, so that's very good if, if it's an, a conversation piece. People look at it, and then they start to talk. I'm sure you must have learned all the tricks for, for dealing with all these different situations. Was there ever a moment that you could remember where you really didn't know what to do? Where you really thought, gosh, what now what do I do? Well, when you, when you break down in the middle of nowhere, and uh, I mean, <laughs> you have to wait maybe for transport to transport into you into the next city. If the frame breaks, for example, but uh, uh, since you have no schedule and have to be in a place at a certain time you just relax you know i mean of course you could be dead in the middle of the sahara if it's 50 degrees or 45 degrees and you run out of water that's deadly i tell you eh? and you get very 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 nervous when you have drunk your last drop and nobody is around eh? you know it happened to me when i crossed the sahara but it didn't happen very often because there was enough traffic on the main sort of test but in the Sahara, they can easily leave that piss because it may be corrugated, it may be too soft sand. And so they try other places. And sometimes you see a car passing you in one kilometer distance and he won't see you if you need water, you know. And so it was like that when I, I kind of followed a truck, but the truck veered off because that's part of the problem in, the, in, in desert areas because people ride everywhere or can with their cars and have maybe a compass to get back on where they want to go. But it's very... Uh, confusing for for somebody who has to follow tracks to get sort of in the you know I know I know I also need to go north but uh, I usually follow the tracks and not uh, use a use a compass because a compass is not the solution either and so I must have gone off the the uh, the track a, a bit too far and then I run out of water and then I try to find the, the they have sort of every five kilometer an iron stick in the ground that you have to that that marks sort of the main piece. And I was I was desperately checking the horizon. I got I, I got out my my binoculars, my my eight by twenty one, and finally I kind of discovered it in the distance. But it was a couple of hours before I got back, and then finally a truck came and I stopped the truck this time and. And they ask for water, and and of course that is uh, in the desert is usually a common thing. And he can't just he, he may not give you fill all your containers, but he will give you a few liters anyway. But usually I had no problem there because people pushed water onto me in the Sahara. You know when they come by and they stop and they see you on a bicycle and they see the sand all around, and they 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 say you have enough water, and you said yeah because I was capable of carrying 15 liters. But uh, that is very heavy. And so I discovered that it wasn't necessary to carry 15 liters because of all the people that stopped and offered you water on the way, you know. And there were frequently uh, vehicles through the, the Sahara. And so I was uh, usually having my four or five liters. That was okay. And in fact, so many times people stopped that I didn't know what to do with the water. And I had a shower in the middle of the desert. You know, they always said, fill it up, fill it up, fill it up. If we got plenty of water. So there was like 15 liters and I didn't want the 15 liters. So I could use up five, eight, ten liters for silly things. And <laughs> it was kind of funny. And sometimes... You know, just a few kilometers on, another car would come and stop and would offer you water. And once I remember a French, uh, a French 4x4, I flatly refused the water. 
And he got very angry, you know, and he said, uh, he left, his, uh, we were saying, you're going to die here. You know? <laughs> so it, it's very, very strange, you know, things, the way things happen. But you learn, you know, and you learn that in on that route, there were like 20, 30, 40 cars a day coming through there, that it was not necessary to carry water, except, of course, the one time when I lost my way a bit. And then when that happens, you are very paranoid about water. You know, I had a few incidents like that, and I, I, I you know, it's like... Uh, you know, you read that you you die, you dead in a, when it's 45 degrees and the and the air humidity is very low and you have had your last drop. You have another 24 hours and then you're dead. And and that's uh, it's uh, something standing in front of you when you are in a very hot area and you you run out of water and there is no nobody around, you know. And a few incidents like that did happen to me, and so I'm always very nervous when uh, when I haven't got enough water with. But I know, I look at the map and I know, I sort of take calculated risks. That is the way I don't lock my bicycle in Japan, because nobody ever steals in Japan, okay? And that's uh, sort of what I call, you take a calculated risk, you know, if you're just a few minutes in a shop like I did in, in Cheetah in Siberia, and I, I took the calculated risk, because I could see out of the window, I could see the bicycle on the post that had leaned it against. I was looking for batteries, but it was during the time when the big shops in Russia, they had just divided into tiny little kiosks that where, where everybody sort of sold what he had to sell. And I, I couldn't immediately find the batteries. And so I went from one kiosk to another inside the shop. And I had a glance out of the window, the bicycle was there. The next glance out of the window, the bicycle wasn't there, you know. And so I raced outside the door and and I took the wrong turn. I, t I went left instead of right. The, the thief had ridden the bicycle away uh, and had taken the wrong turn. And then I did go right. And then a, a group of policemen came down the road and asked about this bicycle. And, and you know, they more or less understood what I said. And they said, yeah, yeah, they'd seen somebody riding up the road. And a youngster who was very wobbly, you know. And, of course, he disappeared. The police, we went back, back to the police station. We drove around all the... The, the blocks in the area there, the bike disappeared, you know. And then it was the news and 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 the woman, you know, they they, they you know they had to get a translator because my Russian wasn't good enough. So the woman, a woman came, who taught uh, German in a in a school in in this city in Siberia, you know. And and he uh, and she got, and then she uh, she went to the local local television station. And I, I sat in the hotel that they had given me, waiting for my stuff to come back. Because not only the bicycle, my luggage and everything was on it as well. You know, all my money. I had like, like about $3,000 on me at the time. And, uh, and and I could see the woman on the screen. Every 15 minutes, the program was, was stopped. And there was the woman with the microphone and telling about the guy. I couldn't understand it all. About the guy who was traveling the whole world and his bicycle was stolen. You know, <laughs> and, uh, and the, the guy who had taken the bike, he couldn't take the stolen bike back to his home. Because, you know, he was a kid. And the parents probably wouldn't have liked it. So he took the luggage to some, some friends and left it there. And he disappeared with the bicycle alone. And so these people, these, these, his girlfriend, or uh, uh, probably not a real girlfriend, but anyway, they saw it on television and they looked at the luggage and they said, oh, that's the, that's the luggage, you know. So they took it to the police station and then they told the name of the guy, of course, and the police went to the house where the, the, the youngster was and he wasn't there. But eventually he had to come back. And so that's how they, they, they caught him. And it took, what, three days to get... They did, he said, oh, he, he didn't have the luggage anymore. And, uh, you know, he gave some things back. But they, they put him under house arrest or in, in a cell. They could, could hold him for three days. That's how, how they said. And they put him under pressure. And more and more things came back. 
until in the end there were just small little things missing. And among the things that were missing was a leather belt, you know, that, and, and you know, the police woman that had my case, she was, she, she, but you know what she did? She took off her, you know, her service police belt and he gave, she gave it to me, you know. And I wore it for something like four or five years because it was good quality leather. <laughs> and I, I'm sure I have it as a souvenir somewhere, you know. And the bicycle was back and most things were back. The Russian money disappeared and some food disappeared and that was it, you know, but I could live with it. You've been really, really lucky, I think, to have your bike stolen six times and get it back every time. And get it back. Well, I was I was really insistent. Of course, I would stay until it was found, you know, and uh, if that's that it would have stayed a month. I would have tried to find it myself. And I mean, that's incredible that it came back. The longest it took was about four or five days, and that was in San Francisco. Heinz, one of the things that I'm curious about, and I'm sure that many people are curious about, is how you financed all this travel over the years. I know that you have a booklet that you've sold in the past. Is that your primary method of raising money, or do you seek out sponsorships? Big money is very difficult to get, you know, because all these Red Crosses and the Ox Pumps and all these big charities they have the hold on the on the money or in industry so you write to them you can forget about it if you know the boss himself you will get something but if you if you have to talk via the underlink trying to get to the boss it's impossible nowadays because they all have instructions you know because so many people ask for for this and that material money you name it that you will certainly get a a letter of uh, of decline, you know, it doesn't matter what, you know. So I'm very skeptical if you, you want to get money out of a out of a company. Cyclists around the world, cyclists, you may get, uh, you may get some uh, material, you may get some tires, you may get some uh, uh, Brooks saddle or something like that. But to get considerable amount of money, you can forget about that, you know, unless you're a very good communicator. I'm selling my booklet in the streets. And if I have a good spot, 100 a at 3 euro or 4 euro on a booklet, so I have at the end of the day, I have 300 or 400 euro in my pocket. And it's all duty-free, uh, tax-free, because I don't, uh, I, I, I don't exist, you know. Listen to this, you know. I'm very proud that it is possible in our interconnected, dependent society to have a guy who's a one-man enterprise, completely lives on his own, on his own wits, and uh, and and does reasonably well, reasonably well dressed, uh, uh, accepting sort of uh, standard uh, uh, laws of behavior in the society, but actually is uh, is 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 not counted. Or yeah, I don't know. I I know I have a German passport, and but but I've never worked for forty eight years, and I I wonder where I statistically stand. You know, like am I one of the uh, six million unemployed in Germany. Am I counted? <laughs> and I'm very proud that that is possible in, in this society without that you, you run into conflict with, uh, with, with the law and the government. How much do you survive on a day? Are you, you said you aren't quite as frugal as you once were. You know, when I, I've been selling my booklet and I have uh, made 400 euro in one day somewhere, you know, I'm not stingy. I invite people... I pay for the bill, we go out, we drink and things like that, but that's for that day. You know, the next day, of course, I take the, the remainder of the money and say, and, and say, oh, this will last for so long, you know. But it just depends on what, uh, what, was, uh, what has come my way on that day, you know. So I can be... And nowadays, it seems to be much easier because I, I haven't sold my booklet for years now. 
I have it, but I haven't sold it because there's always seem to be a, a money falling from the sky. That's the way it goes. If you stick enough to your things, then I don't have too much competition there because you, it's like that. You're, you're reached the top of a heap in, in one kind of activity like sports or, or painting or music or whatever, you know, you reach the top. Uh, somebody will, uh, I mean, some of these uh, popular things, and you will, you'll be very rich even. While, while a, a little bit down the ladder, you struggle to survive on your art, you know. I'd like to turn to the future a little bit. Where do you think you'll be going in the next few years? I still want to go to the very Nordic uh, places in Canada. I want to go to Labrador, to Shefferville, and I want to go to Iqaluit in, uh, in Nunavut, and I want to go to Churchill, and I will go to on the Dempster Highway to Inuvik, and this is sort of for for the coming summer, because you better go there in the summer. I was told. <laughs> if I have enough money, I may take a round the world. I have had lots of round the world tickets now with stopovers in different places to get to the last places that I can go to, but it just depends on the on the money that comes my way, you know. And I always have worked out uh, interesting routes in the last four or five years. But they all came quite expensive, you know. So I, I would, uh, the one journey in 2004, 2005, for one year, it cost me 13,000 euros. That was the, the most expensive year ever, you know. And, uh, but I, you know, somehow the money was there. So I, I, you know, at the moment, I'm trying to go to all the places that are, that are administratively different or that for my own reasons I want to do and and most of them are, are remote. But I've already sort of set my a deadline for 2012 when I'm basically 50 years on the road, never been back in my hometown, although I've been back in Germany now because in the beginning I was also 40 years. I, I, I took good care not to step on German soil because it was like going home and that was not allowed, you know. <laughs> I couldn't go home. And so in 2012, I may uh, not have done all these places so that's uh, that's uh, really to be seen, you know. So I, Nunavut is, is on my list, and that's one of the reasons I'm, I want to go. And I also want to do my 12,000 kilometers by bicycle every year. You know, in 2008, imagine that. In, in when, I was, uh, when I was 68, I did uh, 22,000 kilometers. That's my best year ever in 40-something years, you know. So I can be proud of that, too. But the reason is that I'm like more and more those lonely stretches in, this, in the desert and in the forest, you know, so I can make more, more cycling. In the olden days, it was like more living, going into the city, staying three weeks, four weeks, uh, uh, you know, more participating in the culture of a country, which is also, of course, interesting. But as, as I'm getting older, somehow it seems more a sort of a daily rhythm of progress, of camping, of independence, of nobody bothering you of not having to find a hotel every evening, of not having to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to work it out in the society with all the complicated issues. I'm, I'm, I, I can really uh, 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 meditate on my bicycle when I'm riding alone in the bush. You know? And I still have that feeling of progress because I think it's the motion. You're riding into the unknown, and, and that is what, uh, what keeps you quite happy. I don't know how to explain it otherwise. Do you still go as quickly as you used to? I read in one story that you go about 100 or 120 kilometers a day. Is that still the case now that you're getting older? I seem to ride more even. I don't know. It's uh, the, the days are long. I don't have top speeds, but I never had really because it, the bike was so heavy and the luggage was so heavy. 
And I seem to have a little bit less nowadays in, in luggage because I can leave things in places. While earlier I may have had, had to even carry my souvenirs with me, you know, and it was getting heavier and heavier all the time. Because if you stay three, four years in a row in Africa, for example, and you know the postal service doesn't work, you know, and you can't send really things from there back because it won't arrive. So you just have to carry it and eventually it becomes just too heavy. And then it depends on the surface of the road, of course, you know. I mean, I'm sure I was uh, was in the in the in the in the, in the in the per hour in those days. I was probably faster in the early days than now. But uh, I keep days can be quite well if I if I choose the right time of year in in areas, for example, in Nordic countries. You know, there there is uh, the the days very very long, and as you get into the rhythm of things, I'm surprised you you can ride 16 hours a day, it's no problem. And that is the way you make good distance. You know, I I was riding in in the northern part towards Yellowknife in in Canada. And if you haven't got headwind or anything, you know, and the days are long, you just keep riding. And there's no real reason to stop because it's all, the landscape is all the same. You ride as much as 180, 190 kilometers a day. And it is true because I, in the, my statistics, you know, in because every entry, exit, and every year, and all the distance per year, I keep it all registered. The last 10 years, that is from my 60s to my 70s, all the last 10 years, have made it into the top 20 years of 48 years in cycle distance. So that's not bad. Heinz, I'd love to talk to you for at least another hour. There are so many questions that I could ask you, but I know that as I'm interviewing you, you've got a big trip planned for tomorrow and lots of sorting out to do. So I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. Yes, you're welcome. You're welcome. Heinz Stucke, how can you follow an act like that? I guess you can't, and that's why I'll say goodbye for this week. Talk to you again soon on the Travelling 2 Bike Touring Podcast.